0: Listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 186. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you, as always, for your time and your attention today. Before we dig in to the episode, I would like to thank all of you for your feedback and responses to last week's episode, where I read through my translation of Genesis 1 and then gave you the homily for Ash Wednesday, entitled, In the Beginning, A Story. It was the most feedback I've gotten from any episode thus far, and yet paradoxically, It was one of the least listened to episodes of my show in recent years. Very interesting. But again, this is the Warrior Priest podcast, where we stand at the intersection of conflict and belief. And it is one thing to spend our time with Musashi and the Havamal podcast, with the Trojans and the Spartans and knights and samurai and so on, that is most definitely the conflict side of the street. But if we neglect to attend to the belief side, things will become disjointed and the weight, the emphasis I believe, falls too much on the side of conflict. Especially, as I've noticed, both pastorally and just in general in our culture, we are so focused on things, what the medievals used to call the things below us. That is, things of the earth. And we very rarely, if ever anymore, look up. That is, ask questions of meaning, ask questions about higher truth. Almost all of our time and attention and thoughts are monopolized by the two basic questions that I have addressed before. What is this made of? What are its raw elements? And what is its function? What does it do for me? We don't ask, what does this mean? Not, nearly often enough, especially in pop culture. Pop culture is entirely constructed and packaged for us to consume, digest, defecate, and repeat. We know this. I've discussed it at length. I'm sure you have noticed it yourselves and thought deeply about it. Our present culture is, in my opinion, now in the midst of a new dark ages, But yet, when you study the so-called Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages, it actually wasn't that dark. Most of what is labeled the Dark Ages is a product, once again, of modern scholarship and a kind of progressive arrogance on the part of academia. There was so much going on during the so-called dark ages. And again, it was not, when you study it and read the original texts, the primary texts, it was not as dark as it seems to at least modern readers, modern audiences, to quote the critical drinker. But the new dark ages that we are now in, it is a time of illiteracy, of darkened minds, of hopelessness, of the disintegration, and unraveling of culture. It is just that now we can watch it happen in real time. And I think that that, for us, increases the weight of the times. And as I have learned, time is relative. I know that's shocking to all of you that I have come to that conclusion, even though we were all taught it in school. But... (laughs) What that means, though, again, it's not enough to simply say time is relative. We have to ask, what does that mean? And what that means is that the more you focus on time, which is an earthly consequence, it is an earthly authority, it governs our days and our years, the more you focus on time, the faster time advances, but the more you focus on higher things, on space, on celestial matters, on heavenly things, on belief, the slower that time advances. And this was understood for millennia. And it is something that modernity in particular deconstructed. And it is something that post-modernity has all but assumed to be true and simply the structure within which we live our lives. But again, the ancients knew. When we focus on higher things, time slows. In fact, that is the definition of eternity. That in heaven, in the new Eden, we will not focus at all on time and therefore time will cease To have an effect on us. And so, when I say that we focus on things below us, earthly things, I mean that we focus on time. And when you focus your attention on time, especially overly much, such as the news does on a daily basis, where everything is bad, we are doomed. And if today's disease does not kill you, tomorrow's will. Time speeds up because we spend all of our time obsessed with our time. How to use it, how not to squander it, who we can share it with, who we can give it to, who we must hoard it from. And as a consequence, the whole matter of belief is treated like some sort of mystical or esoteric knowledge when it is not. The pre-moderns understood that earth supports heaven and heaven covers the earth. Heaven is objective truth. The earth is narrative. It is the story that we tell that explains life, the universe, and everything. Heaven is what provides the meaning. It covers everything with meaning. meaning. Heavenly things, higher things, are what is objectively real and true. And those things express themselves through narrative, through story. So if we want to understand the meaning of something, we have to tell a story about it. But we have to tell the story within the boundaries of the higher truth that it is attempting to express to us and to teach us. And so during Lent, because this is all of my time right now, translating the Bible, writing sermons, teaching classes on the Old and New Testaments, teaching Bible history, teaching on what we would call philology, that is words and language and what words mean, focusing all of my concentration on learning myths and legends and stories, both religious and non-religious, I will continue to share with you my work. And that is not to say then that I will never go back to reading Musashi or the Hava Mall or the Prose Edda or whatever it may be. But it is to say that we must maintain a proper balance between heaven and earth. And when it is time to speak of belief, we mustn't avoid it and we mustn't shy away from it because we ourselves don't believe. Whether it be a belief in a higher power, a higher authority, whatever that may be, whether it is a belief in an institution or social structure, even if it is belief in our own ability to believe, I do not think that it is beneficial or healthy for our well-being to avoid those matters with which we are uncomfortable. We have to face it all boldly and bravely so that we can hopefully form a more coherent and comprehensive picture of reality and the truth. And so, if you are not a believer in God, or you don't believe in a higher power. I understand. I was an atheist for a long time. But even as an atheist, I took a great amount of joy, I guess is the word, or satisfaction, I guess is probably a better word. I took a great amount of satisfaction in learning about even those things that I denied were true because I wanted to understand holistically why people thought the way they did and why they behaved the way they did. And you cannot understand how a person thinks or speaks or behaves if you do not understand what they believe. Belief is the prime motivator, the driving force in so many people's lives that to ignore it is to squint at reality. So with that being said then, I understand, for those of you who don't want to listen to the show because it's too religious or too Christian, I understand that. But rather than look at it as simply I am proselytizing you, which I of course most wholeheartedly am because I am a Christian and I am a pastor, it's kind of my calling, it's my job. If I didn't, you should question my faith and my beliefs. But secondary, secondarily or second to that is the fact that I want to share with you my work but also then hopefully inspire you to go and read old books, to learn from the old stories and if nothing else, to gain wisdom from them. So that being said then, thank you again for your time and attention. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of you who provided with Me, with so much feedback about the last episode, I appreciate it. And I'm gratified that you got something out of it. So let us push forward further into the wild places. This is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is my translation. And the homily, as I said last week, I make no claims at originality. I am stealing from some of the best in my estimation in order to form a good story. Let's put it that way. And as always, if you want to dig deeper into this for yourselves, I highly recommend Tolkien on fairy tales or on the, the monsters and critics, but in particular on fairy tales. You can go read Chesterton, listen to the episode from a few episodes back, right? Three episodes, four episodes back, Chesterton on fairy tales, and dig into what's happening here. So again, this is the book of Genesis, the book of Moses, the first book, chapter four, verses one through 16. Adam knew Eve, his wife who conceived, and bore Cain, and said, I have been given a man from God. And after that, she bore his brother, Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the earth. In time, after many days, Cain offered gifts to the Lord of the fruits of the earth, and Abel offered the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord looked upon Abel and to his gifts, but did not look at Cain and to his gifts. And Cain was furious, and the cheerfulness fell from his face. And the Lord said to him, Why are you so furious? And why? Has your face fallen? If you do well, will I not receive it? But if you do evil, sin will be immediately present at the door. It will convert you, and it will have authority over you. And Cain said to Abel, his brother, Let us go out in the field. And when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. Now, therefore, you will be cursed on earth that opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When you work the earth, he will no longer give to you his strength. Shaken and trembling, you will wander the earth all the days of your life. And Cain said to the Lord, My wickedness is greater than what may be forgiven. Today you have driven me away from the face of the earth, and I will be hidden from your face. I will find no place to dwell, and will wander the earth, and every man who finds me will slay me. And the Lord said to him, It will not be done so, But each man who slays Cain will be punished sevenfold. Then the Lord set a sign on Cain, so that each man who found him would not slay him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt, wandering about on the earth, on the east side of Eden." And again, that is from the first book of Moses, the book of Genesis, chapter 4. And now, to the homily. To comprehend the meaning of Lent, we must enter into the gloaming time, the time after Adam. Black were those years, and black are the stories that are told about them. Death was everywhere. Weeds choked the grain. Eyes went blind. Humans woke, not to the joy of the dawn, but to time running out. The years were never enough. The grave diggers were always busy. Even Methuselah, who counted his long life in centuries, could feel the weight of time on his bones. Death. De-creation, Unmaking the future, unmaking every part of him, from the gray hairs on his head to the unfeeling tips of his fingers. He knew it. He felt it. He feared it. But that was not all. Humans did not go far. Two seraphim stood outside Eden, just as two seraphim would one day guard the Ark of the Covenant. Later, learned sages saw the connection. It was outside Eden that Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices. Cain was like his father a gardener, a priest. The sacrifices were made. There was Abel's finest lamb, white as a new tooth. There was Cain's first fruits of grain, round and ripe. A good offering. Cain was firstborn. Why shouldn't God's blessing come upon him? But it did not. It came upon Abel, whose name means worthless, upon whom God's favor fell, the second born. It has always been so. And so Cain was furious, and God could see what was coming. Cain, he said, why are you so furious, and why has your face fallen? Cain would not answer. His shame had given birth to a secret rage. If you do well, said God, will you not be accepted? Turn back. There is a way home for you. Cain could only scuff the dirt as curdled blood climbed up his neck. You know, God said, that if you do what is evil, sin will be immediately present at the door. It will convert you, and it will have authority over you. Sin is a slobbering creature. It devoured Cain and put him on like a suit. Then led Abel down into the fields, where it got Cain's thick hands round Abel's neck and choked the life out of him. And yet, God did not kill Cain. He sent Cain to make a city of refuge. And that city was a mark on the man. Cain was spared. We have known sin afterward, Since then, have we not? It reeks on the skin. No matter how often we bathe, we cannot get clean. But there's more. Cain was like Adam. Lamech was like Cain. Nimrod was like Lamech. Their bodies were tuned to their father's ruined pitch. Blood feuds began. Much trust was broken. The ground decayed. The Sumerians, who flooded the plain, brought salt thereto. Year after year, they poisoned the ground. In the end, nothing would grow. This, this has a name. Iniquity. It is the long-term consequences of sin. Iniquity is a midwife at the birth of every child. Our ancestors' failures are heavy upon us still. But there's more. The devil fell first. That creature is nothingness. A being of absolute negation. It prowled the world and its hollow eyes were never far from watchfires. But it was not the only spirit to fall. A third, John the Revelator says. He saw the dragon sweep a third of the stars from the sky. Who knows how? Did it call their names from the realm of the dead? Did the dragon put on beauty and deceive them? Did they fall on their own? However it happened, others defected and were cast down. The worst of these rebellions was on the Forbidden Mountain, Mount Kerem, which is also called Hermon. The gods came down, slinking, slithering, prowling, whispering. They sought out earthly kings. And so Pharaoh Merneptah heard a voice in the dark, and the voice said his name. He woke, and there was Ptah with a plan. The old kings of Uruk also were tutored. Ayala had the fish creature, Adapa, for an advisor. Alaglar had Unduga from the sea. In his time, Hammurabi met Shamash, and from that god recovered the knowledge the flood had destroyed. The trend never stopped. Descartes saw lights in his tent, and a creature gave him his method. Oppenheimer set off his bomb, and Krishna spoke, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. These had a plan, to rule and to remake humanity. The ruling was easily done. The remaking was harder. Harder, but not impossible. The enemy has always worked to remake humanity in its image, an image of ancient jealousy and ravenous pride. This is the method false stories, false practices, and false rituals. The stories confuse humanity. The practices compound the confusion, but the rituals, the rituals promise false incarnation. Remember, heaven and earth are meant to unite. The presence of God will be in creation. He will have communion with his people. But there are unholy interminglings, too. It is called the hieros gamus, the sacred marriage. In the ziggurat of Etaminanki, the Babylonians placed a bed. In Uruk, the priestess Natidu welcomed the demon and slept with a man. In Greece, the wife of the archon king knew Dionysius in the Bukalian. In Tantric Buddhism, they learned Mithuna. In many places, the practice survives. Two humans united, but one embodied a demon. The Nephilim were born from this, the giants. Like humans in stature, but with immortal malice staining their hearts. These were a sign. Humans unmade creation. They disordered the world and made chaos everywhere. Eventually, God allowed them the chaos they had made. Then he released the waters, and the world was unmade for a while it was as though creation had never been and yet some were spared Noah Noah whose name is comfort was Adam again he ruled the animals in a floating paradise he came down on the mountain of God on Tishri he came He planted a garden, and then he fell, too. And so civilization spread like a fire. The old sorcerer kings lived in their palaces. Traders crossed the Taurus and Zagreb mountain ranges with lapis lazuli and tin and iron and cloth and tools, Knowledge increased. Humans made canals and ditches, sluice gates and reservoirs, and watered the plains of Shinar. They enslaved whole populations and made a government to manage it all. And then, at last, they looked up. Let us They said, Make Eden ourselves. We will make God come down. A capable slave he would be. So the work began. There were no stones in Shinar, no good rock for building, but there were mud bricks and sticky bitumen. The city was built. The tower rose Did they think God would not see that he who is enthroned above the host was sleeping He was not The council was gathered the host was there To these God said this is only the beginning A tremor went through the council Much evil they had seen Tribes enslaved, nations destroyed, demons summoned and entertained like honored guests. There is nothing they will not do, Yahweh said. From far below, the workers' chant came up like a witch's incantation. Bring God down, bring God down, bring God down, bring God down down. God heard them and said, very well, let's go down. And so he came, and humanity found that they had miscalculated. We cannot make Eden, and we cannot abide the force of his coming, they said. When God came down, the work stopped. The laborers winced, Their bones hurt and their skin crawled. Their languages and their customs and their knowledge was divided. Sin was in them. And when God approached, that sin melted away. Fallen humanity cannot abide the presence of God, and so they fled. Let others, God said, let others rule these. And so he divided the nations. He appointed spiritual governors to mediate his rule. These are the principalities, the great archaic. He fixed the borders of the peoples, Moses said, according to the number of the sons of God. The princes of the kingdom of Persia withstood me the angel Michael declared, 21 days. The prince of Greece, he added, will come. Yahweh appointed princes to govern the nations, and then he withdrew. He withdrew. That was the terrible thing. No inroad remained of God's good government. No human partner loved him. In those days there was no king. But Yahweh is not on the field outmatched. His wit is keen, and his love is wide. He is long in planning and bold in action. So many years went by, and then he moved. He slipped unseen into enemy lands. Under the noses of arrogant kings, he sought out a man in Ur, whose name was Abram, Abram. Yahweh would not be deterred. He would see humanity brought back into paradise. But for that to happen, he would have to be the one to lead them through the gloaming time, through the dark and death through the weeds and blindness, into the eternal dawn of Eden, where time can no longer terrify us, where the heavens roar with joy, where those who have fallen asleep shout, where the gods of the world despair. And the Christ is risen from the dead. It is finished, he sings. And so it is. And that is the homily for the first midweek of the season of Lent based on the reading from Genesis 4. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope that you are well. And with that, I will say that I will talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. God bless you. Peace.